ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so carrying on then with the first chapter or the opening section, the introduction, you'll notice in some of your books this opening section is sometimes referred to as an introduction and in some of the prints they call it chapter 1. So it depends on your version of the book. It may be called the introduction in your books or it may be called chapter 1 straight away in your books. So we got up to the second evidence in this chapter, and that is, وَقَوْلِهِ تَعَالَى وَلَقَدْ بَعَثْنَا فِي كُلِّ أُمَّةٍ رَسُولًا أَنِ اعْبُدُوا اللَّهَ وَاجْتَنِبُوا الطَّاغُوتِ In this ayah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that indeed we sent in every nation a messenger preaching to them, worship your Lord alone and abstain, stay away from the false deities. So this ayah is highlighting to us connected to the previous one, that Allah sent messengers with revelation to guide the people to the truth. How is that connected to the previous ayah? The previous ayah from last week was, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ that I did not create the jinn or humans except for them to worship me. That ayah had told us that the purpose and objective of our existence is to worship Allah. But then, if Allah created us with this objective of worshipping Him alone, upon Tawheed. Did Allah create us and give us that objective, but then not tell us how to fulfill that objective? Or did He create us, give us that objective, and tell us how to fulfill that objective? Which of the two? Certainly, He told us how to fulfill the objective of worshipping Him alone. How did He tell us? Through the sending of the prophets and the messengers. So you see a clear connection. Allah created us for the purpose of worshipping Him. That's our purpose here. But Allah didn't just create us and make that our purpose without telling us and guiding us on how to fulfill that purpose. Rather, Allah told us and guided us on how to fulfill the purpose of our existence 
in worshipping Allah upon Tawheed. How did he do that? By sending the prophets and the messengers with the revelation. So that we would then understand and recognize and know in detail how to fulfill our objective of worshipping Allah. That's why, and we've mentioned in previous gatherings, Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala mentioned that there is a wasila that you must acknowledge. There is a type of wasila that you must acknowledge and accept. If you don't, it is kufr. What is the wasila that we must acknowledge and accept? And if we don't, it is kufr. The wasila of the prophets and messengers coming to us with the revelation from Allah that was given to them. Because Allah did not send Jibreel alayhi salam to each and every one of us individually to tell us about the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Instead, Allah selected the prophets and the messengers and Jibreel alayhi salam was sent to them and then they conveyed it all to the people. So who are the means through which this revelation came to us via the prophets and messengers, the selected ones that Allah sent Jibreel to with the revelation, they then conveyed it to all of the people. So they are a wasila, a means for us to be given that revelation. If you reject that wasila, meaning you reject the prophets and the messengers, and the fact that they came to us with the revelation, then that would be of course kufr. That's the meaning of Ibn Taymiyyah regarding this wasila that you must accept. But then there is a, 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 another wasila, the common type that people talk about, which is actually shirk, the wasila of the dead people in their graves and calling upon them and the shrines and the tombs. That wasila that the people talk about, or the wasila of the prophets and messengers to take your dua to Allah, or the wasila of the angels. That type that the people talk about, you must reject. If you accept and acknowledge that type, it would be kufr. So accepting and acknowledging that type, calling upon the dead, etc., is impermissible, it's kufr. But the other type we've mentioned here, the wasila of the messengers, the prophets, in terms of the revelation being sent by Allah to them via Jibreel, and then via them, all of that being conveyed to the people and to the masses, that is the wasila we accept. They are the means for that revelation to have been conveyed to the masses, to the people. So Allah tells us that indeed He sent a messenger 
He sent a messenger to every ummah. And ummah can have different meanings, but generally speaking, to every nation or group of people throughout time, then generally speaking, all of those people and all of those nations, they were sent prophets and messengers. In the ayah, it mentions specifically Rasulan, and you know that there is a discussion regarding al-farq bain al-nabi wal-rasul. What is the difference between a prophet and a messenger? So, what is the difference between a prophet and a messenger? Firstly, which one are there more of? Were there more messengers or were there more prophets? There were more prophets. There were more prophets. There were more prophets. Because every messenger is also a prophet, but not every prophet is a messenger, meaning that there are more prophets than there are messengers. And there are some narrations talking about the prophets being in excess of... How many? 124,000, over 100,000 prophets. But the messengers, figures of only... There are some narrations talking about 300, 310 odd 313, there are some narrations that mention that the messengers were limited in number, but the prophets over a hundred thousand. So what is the difference between a prophet and a messenger then? Anybody? How old are you? How old are you? 11 year old has given the answer which is the most common answer that you will hear. The most widespread answer that you will hear is this answer. Doesn't mean that it's the correct answer. We're saying it is the most common answer that you will hear. And that is that people say a prophet and a messenger, both of them were given revelation of course both of them are given revelation but the prophets are not necessarily commanded as a wajib that they must go out publicly to convey it whereas the messengers it is upon them that they must go and convey it that is something you see or hear a lot in many of the books in many of the explanations what the scholars mention However, there appear to be explanations that are superior to that. One of the obvious reasons why there would be explanations superior to that, better than that, is because of this point that prophets were given revelation, but not commanded, not as an, uh, an obligation or a wajib to convey it and spread it on a wide scale. How can that be? Surely prophets were commanded to go and spread and convey 
as messengers were. So if that's the case, what other difference could there be then between prophets and messengers? This is one thing some scholars have mentioned, that messengers were given a new revelation, whereas prophets were given the same revelation as the previous messenger to re-establish it amongst the people. So if you imagine, like we said now, there were thousands of prophets, but there were only a limited number of messengers. So there would have been prophets and prophets and prophets, and then a messenger, prophets and prophets and prophets, and a messenger. The prophets, it is mentioned upon this explanation, they were commanded to re-establish and propagate and convey the revelation that had already come down previously with one of the messengers. So that means the prophets were not given a new revelation. They were given the same sharia, the same revelation as previous, to re-establish it amongst the people when it had become weak and the people had left and abandoned and gone upon the deviated ways, to re-establish it and reaffirm it. So then in that case, upon that explanation, the difference would be, that messengers and prophets are both given revelation, they are both commanded to convey it and spread it, but messengers were given a new revelation, a new sharia, whereas prophets were given the previous one to reaffirm it and re-establish it. There is another difference some of the scholars mention as well, and this is through examining the stories of the prophets and messengers, they say, you will notice by analyzing the stories of the prophets and messengers that messengers were sent to people who were in absolute opposition of them. Like the example of Ibrahim salam, they say there was not a single person except that they were upon shirk. They were sent to opposing people, whereas prophets were sent to people that were not in absolute terms completely in opposition uh, to the level of the people that the messengers faced. Because the people that the prophets faced, then those people were initially upon a revelation previously, but then slowly it had become more diluted and more diluted until the Prophet was sent to re-establish it. So there were remnants amongst the people and they were not as aggressive against their Prophets as opposed to the messengers. They were sent to people that were absolutely in opposition upon shirk against the messengers. So they say that is a difference too when you analyze the types of people that the messengers faced were much more aggressive and against them, as opposed to the types of nations that the prophets faced, it was less so. Obviously the prophets also faced enemies, obviously, mushrikun, obviously, who opposed them and went against them, but it wasn't to the level of severity as to what the messengers faced. 
That is something they mention, and there are other things as well. So here it mentions that we sent to every nation a messenger, and a messenger, as Sheikh Al-Fawzan says, مَنْ أُوحِيَ إِلَيْهِ بِشَرْعٍ وَأُمِرَ بِتَبْلِيغِهِ The one who has been inspired with a revelation and has been commanded to convey it and propagate it. وَالرُّسُلُ كَثِيرُونَ And there are many messengers, over 300 that are mentioned. مِنْهُمْ مَنْ سَمَّ اللَّهِ لَنَا فِي الْقُرْآنِ وَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ لَمْ يُسَمِّ لَنَا So if there are 310, 315, 300 and something messengers, do we know the names of all of the messengers that were sent throughout history? We don't. We don't know the names of all of them. But we know the names of some of them, as Allah mentioned in the Qur'an, وَرُسُولًا قَدْ قَصَصْنَاهُمْ عَلَيْكَ مِنْ قَبْلُ وَرُسُولًا لَمْ نَقْصُصْهُمْ عَلَيْكَ That there are messengers who we narrated to you about before, from the ones who came, and there are messengers who we did not narrate to you about. Meaning there are those who we know their names and we know their stories, and there are other messengers who we do not know of their names. And likewise, obviously, from the prophets, there are many that we do not know exactly by name. But the aqidah of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, of course, is that we have iman in all and every single one of the prophets and messengers whether we are aware of their names and their stories, and the ones we are not aware of their names and their stories, we believe that they were sent, there were prophets and there were messengers, sent to the nations, guiding them to the truth and calling them back to Tawheed, and warning them against shirk throughout the ages. فَنَحْنُ نُؤْمِنُ بِجَمِيعِ الرُّسُلِ مِنْ أَوَّلِهِمْ إِلَىٰ آخِرِهِمْ So the shaykh says, we believe in all of the messengers from the first of them to the last of them. مَنْ سَمَّ اللَّهُ لَنَا وَمَنْ لَمْ يُسَمِّ Those whom Allah named for us and those who He did not name. وَالْإِيمَانُ بِالرُّسُلِ أَحَدُ أَرْكَانِ الْإِيمَانِ سِتَّةِ And of course, iman in the messengers is one of the six pillars of iman. So, at the beginning of this ayah, Allah tells us, وَلَقَدْ بَعَثْنَا فِي كُلِّ أُمَّةٍ رَسُولًا Messengers were sent. With what message though? That's what comes up in the next section of the ayah. The message that they were sent with was, أَنِعْبُدُ اللَّهِ وَاجْتَنِبُ الطَّاغُوتِ to tell the people, worship Allah and stay away from the false deities. What do you notice in that message? There is a an affirmation and a negation. Where is the affirmation? Allah. They were told to tell their people, worship Allah alone. Affirmation. And the negation? 
Stay away from the shirk. Stay away from the false deities. And Taghut, you know, studied in other books and places, all of that which transgresses the boundaries from the different types. All of those Tawagheet, the false deities, the false gods, all of what they worship, then that is the Taghut, the Tawagheet, abstain from their worship. So as Shaykh Al-Fawzan mentions here, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not send the messengers for them to go and teach the people worldly matters. That Allah did not send the messengers for them to go and teach the people worldly matters. مَا أَرْسَلَ الرُّسُولَ يُعَلِّمُونَ النَّاسَ الْفَلَاحَ وَالزَّرَاعَ وَالصَّنَاعَ Allah didn't send the messengers so they can go and teach the people about agriculture, farming, uh, manufacturing. Allah didn't send the messengers to go and preach worldly matters. Uh, Neither did He send the messengers to go and teach the people about eating and drinking, affairs of eating or drinking. وَلَا لِيُعَلِّمُوهُمْ أَنْ يُقِرُّوا بِوُجُودِ الرَّبِّ وَالرُّبُوبِيَّةِ Neither did Allah send the messengers with the primary objective of teaching the people a rububiyyah, that there is a Lord and that He created all of the heavens and the earth and that He controls the heavens and the earth. You remember a rububiyyah, singling out Allah with His actions that are unique to him. The prophets and messengers were not sent with that as a primary objective, to go and teach the people about ar-rububiyyah, the actions of Allah and singling out those actions to Allah. Because the people as a whole, throughout history, no matter which prophet it was, which messenger it was, they did not face people who were upon opposition in regards to arububiyyah even the mushrikun at the time of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam if you were to ask them who created the heavens and the earth in the quran it mentions they would say allah so arububiyyah that wasn't the core of the message the core of the message that they were sent with was to worship Allah alone, Al-Uluhiyyah, to single out your actions to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. And that is because we know the people did not have an opposition in Ar-Rububiyyah per se. We know that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, كُلُّ مَوْلُودٍ يُولَدُ عَلَى الْفِطْرَةِ Every child is born upon that natural state, the natural disposition, meaning the natural state of Tawheed. Everyone is born upon that natural innate nature. ثُمَّ أَبَوَاهُ يُهَوِّدَانِهِ أَوْ يُنَصِّرَانِهِ أَوْ يُمَجِّسَانِهِ 
Then it is afterwards his parents and what occurs that he becomes upon the path of Judaism or the path of Christianity or the path of fire worshipping or whatever path it may be. But kullu mawludin yuladu ala al-fitrah. Every child is born upon that natural innate disposition. And that's why in the books of Aqidah they mention, when the prophets and messengers were initially sent from the beginning, from Adam as a prophet and Nuh as a messenger, they weren't sent to teach the people and to explain to the people that Allah created you and that He is your provider and sustainer and the one who controls the universe. Not for that purpose. Rather for the purpose of telling them, single out your worship to your creator. The one you know who created you. The one you know who controls the universe. And also we know that from the beginning, mankind was born upon, created upon, Tawheed. The asal was Tawheed. When Adam salam was created, and then the generations of people that came after him, they were all on the origin of Tawheed. And the evidence, Hadith in Al-Bukhari, كان بين آدم ونوح عليهم السلام عشرة قرون كلهم على التوحيد. Between Adam and Nuh, Adam and Nuh السلام, there were ten generations. And normally the default meaning of a generation in Arabic, of a qarn, the default linguistic meaning of that is how many years? A hundred years. Which would potentially indicate that between Adam and Nuh, there were approximately a thousand years. And all of the people in that time, all of the generations in that time were upon Tawheed, the Asl. Not like the people of innovation who say that the origin of mankind was to be lost. Not knowing what to do on this earth and what it's about and what their objective is, they were lost. And then they had to examine and look at the stars and look at this and look at that. And then work out that, ah, we're here to worship Allah. That they were lost originally, lost. And then they had to work out, ah, okay, Tawheed. This is not the way. This is what the people of deviation say. The actual reality is mankind was created upon Tawheed. Not that he was lost and then he had to work out and analyze and where and what and who, and work out Tawheed, we have to worship our Creator. Rather, they were created upon it. So here then, the messengers were sent to teach the people, worship Allah alone, وَاجْتَنِبُوا tahut, And to stay away from the false deities. All of the things that have transgressed the boundaries. And the head of all of the Tawaheed, of all of the Tawut, the head of them, of course, is Iblis. Iblis, a shaitan, is the head of all of the Tawagheet. And 
the taghut anyone or anything that transgresses the boundaries so magicians can be classed as tawaghit fortune tellers and sorcerers can be classified as tawaghit as taghut those who rule by other than what allah revealed those who command the people to follow them and worship them all of these types of things can be considered as a taghut But remember, not everything, or rather everyone, not everyone who is worshipped besides Allah is necessarily a tahut. Not everyone worshipped besides Allah, worshipped besides Allah, is necessarily a tahut. Why? Because the point is, if you are worshipped besides Allah and you want that, you are pleased with it or you are even calling to it. But as for the one who is worshipped besides Allah and he rejects that, then that person is not, obviously not Barut. Like Isa salam is worshipped by the people, but he rejects their worship. And the angels are worshipped by the people, but they reject that worship. So the taghut is not just anyone worshipped besides Allah. That isn't the way to remember it. The taghut, one of the categories is the one who is worshipped besides Allah and is pleased with it, wants it, or even calls to it, to his own worship, like Pharaoh, Tawut, saying to the people, Ana Rabbukumul A'la, I am your Lord the Most High. And he used to say to them, Who has given you permission to worship another God besides me? Who gave you permission to do that? So Tawut, the one who calls to his own worship also. Fallahu amarana bi'ibadatihi wa ijtinaabi Tawut. So Allah commanded us to worship Him and to stay away from all forms of taghut. And that includes the uh, statues and the idols, al-asnam wal-awthan. And who can tell us what is the difference between al-asnam and al-awthan? As-sanam al-wathan. In English we just say statues for all of them. But in Arabic, what is the difference between the Asnam and the Othan? Anybody? Anybody? So in English, we just call this statues, but they say in Arabic, that the sonam and the wathan, there's a difference between them. The sonam is a statue that is sculptured upon a particular figure. How we think of statues and idols. Something sculptured upon a particular figure. Whereas a wathan is any item that is considered as an idol for them. It could be a rock, not sculptured upon anything. could be a tree, not sculptured upon anything. Any item for them which is an idol to be worshipped is from the Othan. But the Asnam, they say something which is sculptured upon a particular way. 
So they are the Asnam and the Othan, they are to be abandoned. Walqubur wal Adriha and the graves and the tombs and the shrines, all of that is to be abandoned, all of that would be considered from the worship of others besides Allah. So Allah clearly tells us here, وَاجْتَنِبُ الطَّاغُوتِ Stay away from all of that which is worshipped besides Allah. And in another ayah of the Qur'an, Allah mentioned, فَمَنْ يَكْفُرْ بِالطَّاغُوتِ وَيُؤْمِنْ بِاللَّهِ فَقَدِ اسْتَمْسَكَ بِالْعُرْوَةِ الْوُثْقَى That whomsoever disbelieves in the ta'ut, meaning everything that is being worshipped besides Allah, all of these statues and idols and those affairs, rejects all of that, وَيُؤْمِنْ بِاللَّهِ and has his iman in Allah, then he is the one, فَقَدِ اسْتَمْسَكَ بِالْعُرْوَةِ الْوُثْقَى He is the one who has taken the, the firm grip and the firm stance and the firm uh, handhold. This therefore indicates the same meaning as what we are saying here now in this ayah. The one who rejects the ta'ut and believes in Allah. So this is highlighting the need to abandon the worship of everything besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Whether it is rocks and stones or statues or trees or graves or shrines or the angels or the sun or the moon or people, the prophets and the messengers or the angels, Anything that is worshipped besides Allah must be abandoned. And that would therefore mean you are singling out all of your worship purely to Allah alone. So that was the message that every messenger came with, every prophet came with. Worship Allah alone and stay away from the false deities. Of course, the Sharia, the, the, what you may call the fiqh rulings, were they also exactly the same with every messenger? They were not. The fiqh rulings, they can be different time to time. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends the Sharia, the precise details of the halal and the haram, the fiqh, sends that in accordance to each people and what is beneficial for them. So at one time in history, certain things may have been in the maslaha, in the benefit of those people. So Allah legislated certain affairs for them and allowed certain affairs to be halal for them. But then later on in history, maybe another nation, it is not in their benefit to be allowed to do X, Y, and Z. So it is made haram in their legislation. Allah legislates upon the basis of the maslaha, of what is in the goodness for each nation and each people. So the laws, the sharia, the halal, the haram, the legislation may be different. But the asal of the da'wah, the basis of the da'wah is all the same, tawheed. 
Examples of the Sharia being different, obvious examples in our Sharia now, is it permissible to prostrate to anyone besides Allah? No. But in the Sharia of Yusuf alayhi salam, was it permissible to prostrate to people? To bow to people? It was allowed. But remember, it was not allowed as an act of worship because that would be shirk. And we already said every messenger came with the message of tawheed. So when they were allowed to do that, it wasn't as an act of worship. It was simply from their culture or traditions or the way of respect at that time and in that nation, it was allowed, not as an act of worship. As an act of worship, it would be shirk. So that's an example. In our sharia, even as a tradition or a culture, are you allowed to bow and prostrate to anyone? No. So that's an example of the sharia being different from time to time. And there are many other examples also. Even in this sharia, even within this sharia, we know that when the revelation was coming down, that later, how many years was it coming for? 23 years, the Prophet ﷺ became a prophet at the age of 40 and died at the age of 63. So 23 years the revelation was coming. At the early stages of the revelation, in the early years, certain revelation came, but those rulings were then abrogated and changed later on in the years. That occurs and exists that there were certain rulings that came in the original Sharia or in the early parts of the Sharia in the early years. But then slowly over time certain rulings were changed until the final complete end revelation was left before the Prophet died. Examples of that? Alcohol. 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 Alcohol could be an example, because initially when alcohol was prohibited, when khamar was prohibited, it was not an outright prohibition. It was not that revelation came down saying instantly, that's it, all alcohol prohibited straight out. It wasn't like that, because it's known that the people at that time, they were involved deeply in the drinking of Alcohol, it was in their culture, it was in their nature, they drank alcohol. So it would not be workable for them, for the sharia to come down straight away, instantly, alcohol must be blocked immediately right now. Every type, every all of it gone. You cannot just instantly switch from being a people of alcohol and your nature and your culture and everything on alcohol, to suddenly completely block it immediately. So initially, initially the ruling came down, talking about alcohol having within it, fihi, manafi' linnas, there is some benefit in it for the people, and there is sin and wrong and harm in it. What benefit was there for the people? What does the ayah mean? That there was some benefit in the alcohol for the people. This is from the early revelation. Um, maybe, maybe if, uh, um, well, uh, since they were very uh, addict, 
said to them um, alcohol then they might not like it when they when people when they know the sharia says alcohol is bad everything is bad so they might not like it that's perfect so initially when the sharia said there is some benefit for the people meaning it would have been very difficult impossible even to tell them immediately you must abandon outright so there was a benefit to allow them initially to have some and then slowly start to bring out the revelation or reveal that revelation upon prohibition so initially it mentioned okay there is some small benefit in it for the people because they wouldn't be able to abandon outright then as things progressed the next ruling came which was wala taqrabu salaw antum sukara do not approach the prayer don't start praying and you are intoxicated so at this stage it was still allowed but you weren't allowed to be drinking it or be in a state of intoxication when you come to pray so now it was getting higher in levels certain times now it is absolutely prohibited at the times of the prayers and during your prayer you cannot be intoxicated prohibited at those times now then at the end the final ruling came saying it is outright now prohibited that's an example there are other examples as well regarding ghusl ghusl and when it is required and when it is not required initially ghusl was not required unless actual intercourse occurred because the narration said innamal ma'u minal ma' that the water is only needed if water exists or water is only needed in the presence or the occurrence of other water the meaning of that narration the water of ghusl is only needed if the water or the liquid of the seminal fluids occurs and ejaculates meaning in the early stages if intimacy occurred but no ejaculation occurred then there was no obligation of ghusl because it was only if liquids exited but then later on now we know the ruling if intercourse occurred and the private parts made contact even if there is no seminal fluid from male or female that is released ghusl is still now obligatory as long as the private parts meet idha taqal khitanan faqad wajab al ghusl if the private parts meet then the ghusl is now obligatory so that's an example where originally the affair was lighter but then afterwards now it became to the final ruling that it say ghusl the point being the sharia is legislated to the maslaha of the people legislated to the maslaha of the people we gave an example in kashf shubhat about the graveyards and visiting the graveyards is it permissible to visit the graveyards for the men yes what about the women you on a roll what's uh, your answer almost so there's a difference of opinion about the women some of the scholars they say outright it is not permissible for the women to go to graveyards but other scholars hold the opinion women can go 
and visit the graves of their father, husband, whatever it might be. But only if they go, as we say in English, in a blue moon. Rare visits. Not like the men who can go regularly and visit the graves, etc. Women can go if it is on rare, odd occasions. That is the opinion of some scholars, like a Sheikh Al-Albani. But other scholars say, no, not even in a blue moon, nothing, never. So you have those two opinions that exist. But the point being, in the early stages of Islam, it was prohibited for everyone. Because initially, everybody was leaving shirk and coming to tawheed. It required time for that understanding and tawheed to be established. So they were all prohibited. I used to prohibit you from visiting the graves. But then the messenger said to them, Now, But now visit them, because they will remind you of the afterlife. So again, maslaha. It was the maslaha at the beginning to stop anyone going to the graves, because the graves is one of the biggest entrance points into shirk. So prevent that and stop that completely to start with. Get the aqidah firm into the hearts of the people. Then when it was and they understood how to visit the graves and not to fall into shirk, then they were allowed to go to the graves. So every prophet and messenger came with a sharia that was for the maslaha, for the goodness of the people at that time. But the tawheed was the basis of all of their da'wah. That never changed for any of them. It's mentioned in other parts of the Qur'an where they said, where the prophets said to their people, Ya Multiple prophets, they all said this to their people, O people, worship Allah. You do not have any other God, any other deity to worship besides Him. Then we come to the next ayah, where the author says, وَقَوْلِهِ وَقَضَى رَبُّكَ أَلَّا تَعْبُدُوا إِلَّا إِيَّهِ وَبِالْوَالِدَيْنِ إِحْسَانًا And your Lord has commanded, your Lord has commanded that you do not, what's the word they use, who's got the English? Decreed, your Lord has decreed, your Lord has commanded the qada here in terms of the decree, meaning the command, ordered. Allah has ordered and decreed upon you that you do what? Allah has decreed and ordered upon you, commanded you, that you do not worship anyone, anything except Him. What do you see? Affirmation, negation. That you do not worship. Allah ta'abudu anyone or anything. Illallah accept him. Or illa iyahu accept him. So this is again an affirmation and negation which brings you to the reality of tawheed. Wabilwalidaini ihsana and to be righteous to the parents. This is a side point to benefit from here also. You will notice in the Qur'an in many places, the rights of the parents 
are mentioned straight after the rights of Allah. And the fact that this happens obviously therefore shows you the high status of the rights of the parents. And when you look at the books as well, like the Kitabul Kabair of Al Zahabi, of Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, in their books of Al Kabair, the major sins, what is one of the highest major sins you can do? Exactly. The evil and bad behavior towards the parents is considered as one of the highest major sins. And that is because Allah mentions their rights alongside or straight after His own rights, indicating how important the rights of the parents are. So in this particular ayah, the point is exactly the same. This is another evidence to highlight it, that your Lord has decreed that you do not worship anyone else. No one else is deserving of worship. Except that you worship Him. Highlighting the affirmation and the negation. And the next ayah also uh, affirms this even further. When Allah mentions very clearly, وَاعْبُدُوا اللَّهَ وَلَا تُشْرِكُوا بِهِ شَيْئًا Worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone and do not associate any partners alongside him. What do you see in the ayah? Affirmation and negation. Where's the affirmation? That you worship Allah alone. وَاعْبُدُوا اللَّهَ This is the ifbat. وَلَا تُشْرِكُوا بِهِ شَيْئًا النفي. And do not associate anything alongside him. Notice in the ayah. وَلَا تُشْرِكُوا بِهِ شَيْئًا There is a rule in Arabic. They say, النَّكِرَ فِي سِيَاقِ النَّفِي Ta'um. Tufid al-umum, same as ta'um. That's it. An-nakira fi siyaq nafi ta'um. Oh, tufid al-umum, same meaning. That when you have an indefinite word, just to make it easy, this isn't the full explanation, but just to make it easy. A definite and indefinite word, a definite word when you intend something specific, an indefinite word which is open. Like I said, a chair. Have I specified which chair I'm talking about? But if I say the chair, when you add on the word the, now it's a bit more specific, definite, indefinite. In this ayah, it is indefinite, nakira. Do not associate alongside him shay'an anything and when you have an indefinite word in the context of a negation in Arabic it indicates absolute generality and encompassment of everything when you have an indefinite word a nakira 
في سياق النفي in the context of a negation it includes everything so here do not associate alongside allah anything literally means anything do not associate alongside allah rocks or trees or stones or people or prophets or the messenger muhammad or the angels or jibril anything shay'an an indefinite word in the context of a negation indicates that it encompasses everything so do not associate alongside allah subhanahu wa ta'ala anything then the author mentions the next ayah wa qawlillahi ta'ala qul ta'alu atlu ma harrama rabbukum alaykum and we'll only mention that part of the ayah where Allah says, Come and I will narrate to you what your Lord has made haram upon you. And what is that? Haram upon you. Allah has made it impermissible upon you. What? That you associate anything in partners alongside him. Allah tushriku. That you do not commit shirk. Associate partners. Meaning, do any of your worship for others besides Allah. That is the meaning of shirk. Sarful ibadah lighayrillah. Any type of worship that you do for other than Allah. So the ayah, it means do not do any of your worship, whether it is making dua, whether it is your trust and your dependence, whatever the form of worship, do not do it to anyone or anything besides Allah. These are important points to start remembering. The first five chapters are all like an introduction. These next four or five weeks yet, it's very important to focus all of these first five or six chapters are like an introduction. Then after you've understood all of these principles properly, they start going into specific details. Then they start talking about the, the amulets, the taweez and all these different things. Because then you've understood the ayat, you've understood what Allah is telling us, you can then implement all of this into those specifics. So the first few chapters, important to start remembering these ayat carefully. So again, this ayah tells you the same thing, that Allah has prohibited you from associating any partners alongside Him, doing any of your worship uh, uh, to others besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then he mentions, قَالَ عَبْدُ اللَّهِ بْنِ مَسْعُودِ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ مَنْ أَرَادَ أَنْ يَنْظُرَ إِلَى وَصِيَّةِ مُحَمَّدٍ التي عليها خاتمه فليقرأ قوله تعالى and then the ayat that whomsoever wishes to see what the will or the, the advice or, or what the messenger told us what his final advice was to us then let him read these ayat these ayat where it starts with telling us about the prohibition of shirk and then the ayat they mention a lot of other things within them a lot of other rulings and prohibitions 
Uh, and those you can examine yourselves. The purpose here is only that opening section. That is all we're going to mention. Then after that, the final evidence of this chapter is mentioned. And that is the hadith of Mu'adh ibn Jabal. The hadith of Mu'adh ibn Jabal. And we're going to mention this hadith. This particular hadith reported by Mu'adh ibn Jabal, one of the great companions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Mu'adh ibn Jabal al-Khazraji al-Ansari, one of the great scholars of that time. And it is mentioned he was the most knowledgeable of this ummah in terms of the halal and the haram. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had left him in charge of Mecca. When the conquering of Mecca occurred, the Prophet ﷺ left him in charge as the judge and as the teacher of the people. And then also in the, in the ninth year of Hijrah, or the tenth year of Hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ sent Mu'adh ibn Jabal along with Abu Musa al-Ash'ari to go to, uh, to go to Yemen as a judge and as a teacher of the people. And we're actually going to come to that hadith later on. And after Yemen, and after the death of the Prophet ﷺ, Umar ibn al-Khattab sent Mu'adh ibn Jabal as a judge and as a teacher to the land of Sham, to the Arab countries in the northern areas now. And that's where he eventually died in the plague of Umwas. In this hadith, this famous companion, Mu'adh ibn Jabal, anybody know how old he was when he died, by the way? In his 30s. He was in his 30s when he died, late 30s. Mu'adh ibn Jabal, you hear about all the time, died in his 30s. So in this narration, he says, radiyallahu anhu, كنت رديف النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم على حمار. He said that on one occasion he was riding with the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم on a donkey. So the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم was sat on the donkey, and behind him Mu'adh ibn Jabal was sat on the donkey. So both of them were sat on the same donkey. As Shaykh Al-Fawzan has mentioned, this indicates to you the humbleness of the Prophet ﷺ, that he would allow one of his students, and not only that, but one of the young students to sit alongside him on the donkey, indicates the modesty and the humbleness of the Prophet ﷺ. And also as a fiqh ruling, it indicates the permissibility of two people riding on the same animal if the animal is capable of handling it. As a fiqh ruling, that is something the scholars mention from the hadith. So the hadith mentions Mu'adh ibn Jabal was sitting behind the Prophet ﷺ on this donkey. And the Prophet then said to him, Ya Mu'adh, O Mu'adh, أَتَدْرِي مَا حَقُّ اللَّهِ عَلَى الْعِبَادِ وَمَا حَقُّ الْعِبَادِ عَلَى اللَّهِ 
Do you know what the right of Allah is upon the servants? And what the right of the servants is upon Allah? So you notice here that the Prophet ﷺ, he asked Mu'adh a question. And they say, the scholars have mentioned, this is from the prophetic methods of teaching. To ask a question, rather than just sitting and delivering, where some people may nod off, etc., not focus, you keep the attention of the people by asking a question. Because when you ask somebody a question, particularly if you pick someone out, then even if they were nodding off, all of a sudden now, their heads are up. Now they're thinking, what's the answer? Quickly. You, know, you, uh, you obtain their focus through asking questions. So they say this is a prophetic method of teaching. To ask the student a question in order to attract the attention of the student and the focus of the student on the question and the point you are going to make to them. Because if you don't do that, you just deliver, then that has less impact than asking the question, getting the student's focus. Maybe he doesn't know the answer, but then when you give him the answer, he will remember it more by having asked the question first. So they say this is one of the prophetic methods of teaching, and that is a topic in and of itself, the prophetic methods of teaching. They used to do that in the University of Medina for a short period uh, towards the end of the studies, the prophetic methods of teaching, and they would give examples from the various parts of the sunnah, how the Prophet ﷺ used to teach them. There are examples of the companions uh, and the salaf when they were teaching that they would use physical gestures, just like the Prophet ﷺ would use physical gestures. They say that I'm animated in the lessons, myself personally. But it's okay, because there are prophetic methods that indicate the usage of physical body movements in order to keep the focus and the attention of the students also. And that the Prophet used to do this, give physical examples, like in the hadith where he mentioned... Uh, بُعِثْتُ أَنَا وَسَاعَ كَهَاتَيْنِ In the hadith when the Prophet said, بُعِثْتُ أَنَا وَسَاعَ كَهَاتَيْنِ I have been sent, and the day of judgment will occur, the difference between the time period, between me now having been sent as a messenger, and the day of judgment occurring is like these. And in the hadith, the Prophet ﷺ showed them his two fingers, the index finger and the middle finger and made a gap between them to show them this is where I have been sent, the index finger and the middle finger, that's when the day of judgment is going to be, there's a tiny gap between them. Or some of the narrators say it was about the difference in length. Your middle finger is slightly longer than your index finger, just slightly. So that indicates that the time period before, uh, the time period from when the messenger was sent up until when the day of judgment will occur is small. And the messenger highlighted that to them with the physical example of the gap between his fingers. 
And there are other narrations, we're going to come to some of them later on, when uh, one of the narrators, we'll come to it, but one of the narrators when he was talking about the shayateen, when they climb on top of each other's backs, that he was using his fingers to show them, look, they climb one on top of each other's backs. And he was putting his fingers horizontally on top of each other to give the students an example. So these are prophetic methods of teaching. So here one of the prophetic methods is to ask a question, to get the focus and to give the answer. So he asked Mu'adh ibn Jabal the question, Do you know, O Mu'adh, what the right of Allah is upon his servants? Do you know what the right of Allah is upon his servants? And what the right of the servants is upon Allah? Note that we as the servants of Allah do not actually have any rights upon Allah. The meaning of this is basically what is the virtue and the blessing Allah has given us. What is the virtue and the blessing Allah has given us? Not that we have a right upon Allah. But Allah certainly has rights upon us. So when the Prophet asked Mu'adh ibn Jabal this question, Mu'adh ibn Jabal said, Qultu, I said, Allahu wa rasooluhu a'lam. Allah and His Messenger know best. And this is from the etiquettes of a student of knowledge, that if you do not know, you say you do not know. Just like the famous example the scholars always quote of Imam Malik, a man came all the way from Iraq to where Imam Malik was in Medina, traveled all that distance. The people had sent him, go to Imam Malik and ask him these questions. And there are different versions of the narration. In one of them it says, the man came to Imam Malik with 40 questions from the people of Iraq. And he asked Imam Malik those questions. And in one version it says, Imam Malik only knew the answers to four of them out of the 40. In another version it says, eight of them out of the 40. The point being, the vast majority of them, three quarters or more, 70-80% of the questions, Al-Imam Malik said to him, I don't know, Allahu A'lam, Allahu A'lam, Allahu A'lam, Allahu A'lam, only answered a small percentage, four of them or so out of the 40. In one of the versions it says, the man then said to Al-Imam Malik, Imam Malik was the scholar of the time, the man had traveled, his people had said to him, go to Imam Malik, he'll have the answers. He traveled all that way and he's only got four answers out of the 40 or eight answers out of the 40. The man says to Imam Malik, what do you want me to tell my people when I go back? What am I going to tell my people when I go back? They sent me to you, Imam Malik. I'm going to go back and tell them 32 of your questions or 36 of your questions. He didn't know the answer. What am I supposed to tell them? Al-Imam Malik said to him, Tell them, Al-Imam Malik said he doesn't know. Tell them, Al-Imam Malik said he doesn't know. And there are many narrations of this type. This is from the etiquettes of the student of knowledge. If you see someone, and you never hear them say, I don't know, 
You never hear them say, Allah, I'm not sure about that. They know that there is a problem. There is a problem. There is no Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah in these days. Even the scholars, I've heard it with my own ears, from the likes of a Shaykh Abd al-Muhsin al-Abbad, from Shaykh Ali Nasr al-Faqihi. You hear, you hear it from them. They say, Allah, I don't know this. Shaykh Abd al-Muhsin al-Abbad, considered as the most senior scholar perhaps, certainly in hadith, and in the live classes with four or five times, maybe even ten times the audience here. The audience, when Shaykh Abdul Muhsin Abbad used to give the classes, here, what is it from here to the end of the mosque? Ten meters, how far is that? The class would go probably four or five times back. You can't hear without a microphone at the back. The class would go four or five times the length back that way, another two or three times that way and that way. Huge circle. Hundreds, maybe even thousands, I don't know. And publicly there, when he was asked questions at the end Q&A, for some questions he would say, Allah alam, I don't know. People, the students would be sat there, you know, you, you forward your question, you write your question on the piece of paper like this now, you send it, and all of the people, they pass it on, pass it on, pass it on, and it comes to the front. And then when your question gets read out, you think, excellent, mine got chosen. Your question is going to be read out. The questioner reads out the question, you think, excellent, I'm going to get my answer now. You get your pen, you get everything ready, and then the sheikh says, I don't know. The sheikh says, I don't know the answer to that. Allah alam, Allah alam, la adri, la adri. Many times I heard him say, la adri, la adri. And Sheikh Ali Nasr al-Faqihi, once I heard him say, somebody asked him a question about hadith, he said, I don't know, go and ask Sheikh Abdul Muhsin al-Abbad. And he is from the elder, elder senior scholars, from the oldest of them in Medina himself, Sheikh Ali Nasr. This is the humbleness. And if you read the examples of the Salaf, you'll see it ten times more. Of the kind of thing they used to do. It's mentioned in one narration that the Salaf, they used to say, when they got asked a question, somebody asks me a question, they would say, go and ask such and such. Another one of the Salaf, known for his knowledge, scholar, etc. Go and ask him. So then they would go and ask him. He would say, no, no, go and ask such and such. So they would go and ask him. All of these like people of knowledge, etc., he would say, no, go and ask him. He would say, oh, I, I don't know, go and ask him. Until eventually that person says, go and ask the first one again. None of them wanted to give the fatwa. From, this is from their modesty. The scholars have mentioned it was from their humbleness. That they didn't want to speak with something that they weren't certain of. But nowadays it's the opposite. It's the opposite. If you're... Generally sure about it, khalas, fatwa, fatwa. You don't need to be certain. You know, if you generally you know and you think and this and that and you can put an answer together, give it. No such thing as I don't know, Allahu alam, I have no idea about this issue. So here, Mu'adh ibn Jabal, this is from the etiquettes of knowledge. He says, Allahu wa rasuluhu a'lam. Allah and His Messenger know best. And what do we say is the ruling on this statement? Allahu wa rasuluhu a'lam. Allah and His Messenger know best. Huh? So when the Messenger was alive, the companions would say, Allah and His Messenger know best. Because the revelation was still coming upon the Messenger. Now the Messenger has died, and there is no more revelation. So now we just say, Allahu A'lam, 
No need to add on وَرَسُولُهُ أَعْلَمُ So then, the Prophet ﷺ says to him, he tells him the answer. Now the focus of Mu'adh ibn Jabal is there. So the messenger tells him the answer. And he tells him, حَقُّ اللَّهِ عَلَى الْعِبَادِ أَنْ يَعْبُدُوهُ وَلَا يُشْرِكُوا بِهِ شَيْئًا The right of Allah upon His servants is that they worship Him alone and do not associate partners alongside Him. They worship Him alone. أَنْ يَعْبُدُوهُ وَلَا يُشْرِكُوا بِهِ شَيْئًا and they do not associate any partners with him. What do you see in that statement? Affirmation negation. The messenger is giving us in that hadith, in that statement, affirmation negation. That the right of Allah upon his servants is that they worship him alone. Affirmation. وَلَا يُشْرِكُوا بِهِ شَيْئًا And that they do not associate any partners to him. Negation. So that again, that part there, is a clear affirmation of everything we've been reading so far. All of the other evidences. Because remember, the style of the shaykh is to give you multiple evidences each chapter. In every chapter, there are multiple evidences. All of them, Strengthening the point he is making. The point here to begin with clearly is the point of Tawheed, worshipping Allah alone, abandoning all else besides Him. All of these evidences have been highlighting exactly that point. So that there again in the hadith highlights the same thing. And then he says, because the second part was what is the right of the servants upon Allah, meaning what is the virtue that Allah has given us if indeed we worship him alone and don't commit shirk, then what is the virtue Allah has given us? And then the Prophet... Uh, what's the answer? Absolutely. So the second part, that the right of the servants upon Allah, meaning the virtue that Allah has given us, if we worship him alone and we do not commit shirk, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not punish the one who does not commit shirk alongside him. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not punish the one who does not associate partners alongside him. Meaning Allah will not punish the one who dies upon tawheed not committing any shirk or associating partners alongside him. So that is a great virtue, a tremendous virtue for the one who implements tawheed in his life and abstains from all forms of shirk. Now we're going to learn what those forms of shirk are throughout the rest of the 50 odd chapters in this book. So then at the end when Mu'adh ibn Jabal hears this great news, he says, Shall I not go and give the glad tidings to the people to tell them about this? The Prophet ﷺ said, لا. لا 
Do not go and give them the glad tidings because they may uh, become reliant upon this. Meaning, they may start to think that as long as you are upon Tawheed, then Allah will not punish you, and so they may start to become slack in some of their forms of worship, or maybe even sins, etc. They may start to develop some flexibility in their obedience if they are told, as long as you're upon Tawheed, you will enter paradise, and Allah will not punish you. It could lead to some ease, or too much ease in their hearts. So don't tell them. They may start to rely upon this, and not uh, maybe fulfill their level of worship to the extent that they need to do. So then, the question is, if that's what the Prophet ﷺ told Mu'adh, don't tell them because they may end up relying upon this, then how do we even know about this narration? It was the Prophet and Mu'adh ibn Jabal. That's all two of them. The Prophet told this to Mu'adh ibn Jabal, but then told him, don't tell the people. They'll start depending on it. But then how do we know about this then? It's not in the Qur'an. This exact hadith, how do we know about it if the Prophet told Mu'adh, لا تبشرهم. But why? How? The Prophet told him, لا تبشرهم. Don't give them the glad tidings. So, when Mu'adh ibn Jabal uh, was dying, he did not want to die having kept this knowledge to himself, because it would have felt like he was dying having concealed this knowledge from the people. So he kept it concealed, as the messenger told him. But at the end, when he was about to die, if he died now, then nobody would have ever known about this. So when he was about to die from fear of concealing knowledge, which we know is not permissible, from fear of concealing knowledge, he then reported what the Prophet ﷺ had mentioned. So that is the hadith of Mu'adh ibn Jabal. In brief, if you have the explanations of a Shaykh al-Fawzan, there's a lot more detail there, explaining all the sections in a lot more uh, uh, precise detail, but the general explanation is there, the precise detail that the Shaykh gives, or the extra detail that he gives there, it's actually all going to come up anyway in the chapters following. The evidences that he mentions there, all of them are going to be covered in the chapters coming up anyway. So read that extra explanation, and then we will cover it as well in the following chapters, inshallah. The next chapter which will start next time then next week is going to be babu fadli tawhidi wa ma yukaffiru min adh-dhunub the chapter regarding the virtue of tawhid and how it wipes out your sins how it expiates your sins so that is what we'll begin with from next week inshallah ta'ala and we'll conclude upon that for today then وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم. Any questions or anything?
lion from Uga Philippines. Are you not allowed like when you ask when you ask them a favor? Yes, you can. If that person is able to help you with that favor, then yes, you can. And that is one of the chapters we're going to do later as well, inshallah. Anybody else? We are not asked to do that. Mu'ad ibn Jabal was told to do that. Huh? Uh, how do we then um, like, uh, find a balance with that? Is it... No, there is no balance. We are not requested to do that. We, the knowledge we have, we disseminate that knowledge. We have barely anything to give in the first place. We are not going to hide anything. What you have, you teach the people. And in terms of these kinds of narrations, you have to then explain the other parts which we did in Kashf Shubhat. That uh, if you explain to people Tawheed, and if you die upon that, then that is your salvation. But Tawheed has different parts to it. From your actions and your worship, that's a part of the Tawheed. Because the La ilaha illallah, it means to believe in it, to say it, and to act upon it. So yes, Tawheed is the salvation, but that requires actions. You just have to explain those things to people as well. Major sin, saying oof to your parents and having this type of bad behavior and bad speech to your parents, it's considered uqoqul walidain from the bad, from the major sins against the parents, or the major sins against Allah and a sin against the parents. When you come up from rukuah. So when you're praying and you come out of the rukuah, where do your hands go? Do they go back here? Or do they stay down by your side? Where do they go? Back here? What about, have you seen some people doing it there? Then that's not So some people, they leave their hands down by here. And some people, they put their hands up here. And it's a difference of opinion. It's a very strong difference of opinion. Both are strong. If you look at it, both are strong. It's very difficult to judge. Some of the main evidences in the prayer, how many different positions are there in the prayer? There is, when you start, you are standing. That's one position in the prayer, standing. Another position in the prayer is, the second position is, ruku'ah. The third position is, sujood, prostration. The fourth position in the prayer also is, Sitting. So how many positions in the prayer? Four. All of those positions in the sunnah, it tells us where and how your body is supposed to be placed. In the ruku'ah, we have all the narrations about the arms and outstretched and everything. It's explained. In the uh, standing, yastawi qa'iman, to stand up straight, back straight. In the prostration about how you do it, in the sitting where you put your legs, every position is explained. So now, when you start the prayer in the first position of standing, where are your hands? The chest. In the ruku'ah, where are your hands? Knees. In the prostration, where are your hands? The floor. In the uh, sitting, the julus, your hands are on the thighs, on the knees. So when you stand at the beginning, we said your hands are upon your chest. Then you go into ruku'ah, you're now in the second 
position. Your hands are on the knees. When you stand up again, you're in which position now? The standing position. Where do the hands go in the standing position? Uh, here. Where have you ever heard of a narration or a, or a sunnah that there is a fifth position in the prayer, which is the standing with the hands down by the side? Never. Never. Is there any evidence of a fifth position in the prayer? A position whereby you stand, but the arms are down by the side? There isn't. This is one of the evidences they use. They say, where have you got this fifth position from? That position is the standing position. Where do you put your hands in the standing position? Here. When you come out of rukur, which position are you in? Rukur, sujood, sitting or standing? Standing. standing. And where do the hands go in standing? Um, here. Where were they when you were doing fatiha? Here. They say, where have you got this from? So that's one just general evidence they use. But then the other scholars, they have evidences as well. There's a lot of detail. We did it before. We did the Prophet's prayer described here a few years ago. You can look at it in uh, the Sheikh al Uthaymin, a Sheikh al Uthaymin version. The Prophet's prayer described has all this discussion, all of the evidences for that side, for this side. The other scholars, they say, leave it down by your side because there's a hadith about when you come out of the ruku'ah, all of your body, uh, your bones, Go back to their positions. Back to their positions. So when you stand, what are the natural positions of your bones? Right there. If I say to you now, stand, if, I, if I stand up, stand up. All right, you're standing up. You stand up. And you stand up. Is there anybody who takes the position you put your hands here, by the way? Uh-huh. You do too, stand up as well then. Stand up, stand up. Go, you can go. Stand up. <laughs> Alright, so now I've told these three brothers to stand up, show yourselves to everyone, turn around, do a, a spin. <laughs> Literally, you have to, you have to, you have to. So they've all been told to stand up, and they've stood up in their natural position. If you say to somebody, stand up, does anybody stand up and do this? Does anybody do that when you say to them, stand up? If you say to somebody, stand up, they stand up and this is it. This is the natural standing up position. So they say, sit down. In the hadith, it says when you come out of the ruku'ah, your bones go to their natural position. In standing, the arm bones, their natural position is down by their sides. They say, what are you doing? What's all this? Where's this naturalness? Put your arms up here when you stand. The hadith says they go back to their natural position. But obviously they say, they go back to their position. Where were they before the ruku'ah? Here. So I'm taking it back to the original position. So both sides, you'll have arguments here, you'll have arguments there. It's a very strong uh, uh, issue on both sides. But you can read that in the Prophet's prayer described uh, of a Shaykh al-Ithimeen. I don't know in the Shaykh al-Bani one, it must be there as well, about the discussion of the two sides of the debate. We'll have to leave it there. It's getting late today. Inshallah, we'll carry on next week. صلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم